Before we get started, I'd like to thank Wisconsin Cheese for supporting this season. Hello, I'm Alex Redgrave, Executive Editor at Sever. Welcome to our new podcast, Place Settings. This season, we're traveling across the U.S. to meet the chefs, farmers, makers, and creatives who are transforming the food space through their unique connection to a place, from the high desert of New Mexico to the buzzy streets of Brooklyn. Each week, our editors will chat with a food innovator whose personal journey is as compelling as what they're putting on the plate. Let's dig in. With Honeysuckle Provisions, co-founders Omar Tate and Sybil St. O. Tate are offering something comfortingly familiar, but also radically new. Their Afrocentric grocery store and cafe opened last month in West Philadelphia to serve a neighborhood where fresh organic produce and healthy food options were in short supply. Building on over a decade of experience working as chefs in New York City, with each of them also running a successful pop-up until the pandemic hit, the couple wanted to create a different kind of food space. Honeysuckle Provisions directly supports Black farmers, dismantles toxic kitchen culture, and celebrates Black foodways through dishes like the Black English muffin, named after a James Baldwin essay, or a cup of the cow pea coffee, a nod to George Washington Carver. Throughout their careers, both chefs have used food as an outlet for starting impactful conversations. Omar is an artist and poet who was named Esquire's Chef of the Year in 2020 and was featured on the Time 100 Next list in 2021. Sybil has cooked at the James Beard House, appeared on the TV show Chopped, and explores her Haitian heritage through culinary projects, like a recent dinner hosted with the family of artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. In the last three years, the couple fell in love, got married, had a baby with a second one on the way, and launched Honeysuckle Provisions. But as you'll hear, they're just getting started. Under Omar and Sybil's umbrella organization, Honeysuckle Projects, the provision shop is set to expand with more locations. In the future, it could act as a blueprint for other food businesses to operate on a more human scale. Our senior editor, Benjamin Kemper, recently chatted with the duo as they were prepping for the opening of Honeysuckle Provisions three weeks ago. Oh, wow, look at that. Mm-hmm. It, looks, it looks more bready, right? It does. Because we backed off on the, um, the sweet potato flour by 2%. So it has more of a crumb, and it looks, it just looks more English muffin-y. Yeah, this is just, like, this is it. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then they tear it apart. Yeah, it's got so, good crumb. My name is Omar Tate. I am chef and co-founder of Honeysuckle Projects and co-owner of Honeysuckle Provisions. I am Sybil St. Odd Tate, chef and co-founder of Honeysuckle Projects and co-owner of Honeysuckle Provisions. Are we trying to get color on this? So, right now everyone is prepping. The concept 
is a grocery store and also a like takeout food restaurant. But the front is modeled as a grocery store so people can shop and they can kind of peruse. It's cool, we have a farm ourselves, but um, our farm actually doesn't have a fence yet, so it's been ravaged by deer. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Hey, yep, we know. We're actually, our grand opening is on the 29th, but we keep our doors open because, you oh, know. Cool, what kind of food? Yeah, so we do food at Black Foodways. So I'm from Haiti, so it's Caribbean. My husband's from South Carolina. His family's from South Carolina, he's from West Philly. So it's like a nice hodgepodge of that. and. We make a lot of our own stuff in house. Yeah, the whole gambit. So welcome to the neighborhood. Thank you. See you soon. Why don't we start by getting a window into your upbringing? Sybil, your family came to the U.S. from Haiti, and you grew up on Long Island. Omar, you were raised in South Philly. What did you guys eat growing up? The majority of my childhood was definitely a lot of rice and beans, a lot of stewed meats. My mom worked overnights, and so it was so easy for her to just kind of make a big pot of something, have like rice in a rice cooker, and then go off to work. And when we came home from school, we had everything ready for us. Growing up, um, what I remember, my mom's a single mom. I'm the oldest of four boys, and meals were oftentimes simple. We would eat grits for breakfast in the morning. For dinner, we had things like roasted chicken and stewed green beans with potatoes. We were raised Muslim as well, so we didn't eat a lot of pork. So we definitely ate differently than a lot of our neighbors did because my mom traveled um, outside of our neighborhood to go and get organic and fresh produce from neighborhoods that weren't as uh, marginalized as ours. So, yeah, just a very eclectic and unique food life. What was it like for both of you launching pop-ups in New York City? How did it shape you as chefs and as people? You're setting the tone with the atmosphere, with the music, with the art that's around. And that's not even getting to the food. And so it's being very intentional and thinking about every aspect of someone's dining experience from start to finish that, you know, puts a lot of pressure on the chef or creator. I do playlists and I put together like eight hours that I have to be very meticulous about the song selection. And so just thinking about the timing of that, making sure that this song hit when they ate this bite or when they smelled this scent coming from a plate. A lot of my food um, for my pop-ups really centered around my identity as a Haitian-American individual living in New York. And so um, for me growing up, that nostalgia for some of these dishes comes through old Haitian records that my parents used to play. There's this one very popular band called Taboo Combo, and um, they have an album called New York City. If I'm doing a very, very traditional dish like griot, I have to play something that's Taboo Combo because it's almost like I'm um, channeling ancestors and channeling that like experience that I had kind of growing up and, and eating fried pork with my family, which is a very traditional Haitian dish, while listening to this music. I began my pop-up because I didn't see a reflection of contemporary Black American experiences, in particular to the children of the Great Migration, reflected in food ways. I, I had no clue what that looked like. It was really important for me to establish a position of assertion of not just identity, but a level of um, respect and recognition of humanity in the food. So within that concept, I was folding in my writing as a poet, um, art from myself and, and, and others to contextualize the food in a way, like when you go into a, 
a Chinese sit-down restaurant and, and red is the primary color and gold. And you see these different emblems and symbols of Chinese culture that don't come off as overstated or an affront or a confrontation to the customer's dining experience where, you know, I find that if if blackness or the humanity of blackness doesn't fit into the prescribed boxes or frames that we all understand it to be, it can come across as a confrontation. So it was very necessary for me to tear down those walls. Um, so the format of the pop-up itself was more or less a way to offer the diners a portal into a world that both Sybil and I exist in as African-Americans, where our normal day isn't really about proving how black we are to other people. It's just existing. And I needed this concept to just exist on its own merits as an idea. Omar, when you started hosting dinners in New York under honeysuckle pop-ups, you'd give guests a packet of homemade Kool-Aid powder at the start of the meal. Why was that significant for you? I was a fan of the show Chef's Table. In the beginning of each episode gives a window into the featured chef's childhood or upbringing. And in most cases, followed a very, very typical arc of the chef with their grandmother or some elder in their family in a very provincial setting, either gardening or farming, making something rustic like pasta or butchering meat from an animal that they raised. Growing up in the city of Philadelphia in a very urban city, land-based foods didn't really, didn't really show up <laughs> in my, um, in my upbringing. So what I really needed to do was harvest my own memory. And that harvest to me looked like processed foods, you know? Um, it looked like the corner store. It looked like ShopRite supermarket, you know? Um, it looked like the, the takeout restaurants that were in my neighborhood. And the one thing that my mom made me in charge of for dinner was preparing the Kool-Aid for my family. But what I didn't want to do was offer, you know, this like chemical sugary substance as part of the meal for Honeysuckle. Um, and so I decided to make it from real foods. And it began with freeze-dried strawberries, sugar, and citric acid to mimic or replicate the same flavor profile of Kool-Aid while making it a fully natural organic substance. And in the same way that I was able to rip open a packet and stir this, um, this red concoction into water for my family, I wanted each individual at the table to share their experience with me outside of the constructs of race that we all created to distinguish ourselves from one another, we all share very similar experiences. So although Kool-Aid itself is made for everyone, Black people have this kind of stigma for sweet, sugary drinks like Kool-Aid that kind of stem from the history of watermelon. What I wanted people to do was to look beyond the hands that are making this dish by using their own hands. Hopefully, at least for that moment, the guest is living within the realm of empathy that removes the stereotype and all the things that come along with it when you become one with myself and any other individual also having a similar experience. It's all good? Okay. Just the collars that are back ordered. I just unpacked this. Yeah, we have a bread brush. Yeah, waves, waves, waves. The rice cookers are back ordered till 2023. So what are you gonna do with the rice cookers? For black garlic. Yeah, to make black garlic. How many cutting onions for? Six. 
So I'm actually making a filling for kind of a savory breakfast pastry, kind of like a Hot Pocket, but in the nicest way possible. <laughs> um, yeah, so cutting down the ginger and the onion and I'll stew that with coconut milk and then also incorporating some of these fermented scotch bonnet peppers that our fermentation guy, uh, Jamar, worked on. It's kind of the texture of like a thick sambal. And yeah, so it's kind of got like this floral, like um, fruitiness, very spicy. It's a little bit mellowed down through that fermentation. There are things like the browning with Scotch bonnet that are a nod to our Caribbean heritage and ancestry. And so uh, the collard greens are very Southern. So I think that's the beauty of Honeysuckle in a nutshell is being able to kind of really walk through the variety of black foodways and, and stress how it isn't a monolith and that there's so many different um, layers and colors and flavors and smells and, and tastes to everything that we do. When the Sever editors are putting together an epic cheese board, a creamy cacio pepe, or a melty chile relleno, we look to one place for our star ingredient, Wisconsin, the state of cheese, where rich international influences meet a unique American terroir. That one-of-a-kind cheesemaking culture has flourished since immigrants from Switzerland, the Netherlands, Italy, and beyond first settled in the region's lush green hills almost 200 years ago. The soil and water, nurtured by glacial sediment, provided the perfect conditions for recreating their favorite cheeses. Today, those centuries-old skills, combined with the freshest milk available, has won Wisconsin more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. From grass-fed alpine-style cheeses to cave-aged raw milk cheddars, Wisconsin cheesemakers blend tradition with innovation to create an impressive artisanal assortment that will wow at your next meal. Look for the Proudly Wisconsin Cheese Badge at your local grocery store and discover your next favorite cheese today. So how did the idea for Honeysuckle Provisions evolve from a more conceptual restaurant, similar to what you were creating in New York, to a more grassroots, community-driven grocery shop and cafe. At that point, it really developed as a result of just seeing what was happening with food, especially in, in West Philadelphia, where Omar returned to, um, where his mom was staying at the time. There wasn't really much access to fresh food. The one grocery store that was closest to where his mom was staying had been shut down. It's so jarring to go from a city like New York, where there's fresh vegetables on every corner, every bodega has fruit stands outside of its doors, and you can find anything you need, healthy, not healthy, whatever, to being in Philadelphia and, and being in West Philadelphia specifically and not seeing that at all. That was the light bulb that went off in our heads was just kind of like, man, this neighborhood needs fresh food. It needs people that care about what people are putting into their bodies. And along the way, just talking about the idea and just coming together and thinking of what we could do, it just really manifested into this humongous being that it is now that includes a farm, that includes staff of seven, um, that includes a fermentology department, <laughs> uh, 
um, a robust bread program where we're making our own flour in-house, but it primarily came out of the need or the lack thereof of access to folks in the West Philadelphia area that we were noticing. I was also like really inspired by work that you were doing. Um, Sybil used to do uh, like turkey drives with the Police Athletic League in our neighborhood. The pop-ups that she was doing um, that would take place in Brooklyn were just definitely more approachable um, than mine while still holding those same like values of it being very rooted in the personal and identity making. Uh, where, where mine were taking place in a penthouse on Wall Street and were only available to a few guests, at, especially at the, you know, the price point. They were like one, between $150 and $200 um, and, and very much like ephemeral and abstract where Sybils were taking place mostly at a bar. They were fun and, and funky and there was music. And um, so I was really inspired by that and how those kinds of things can be just as impactful as the work that I was doing while not being exclusionary because the, the dinners that I was doing, although they were like presumably for black folks, they weren't necessarily accessible to people like my mother. They weren't accessible to people like my aunt or even myself as a line cook if I was working at a restaurant. So that more formalized dining concept, which was grounded in philosophy, was really shaped around the work that Sybil was doing. That's how the provisions concept kind of like took shape. So how have you been able to navigate between producing a high-quality product and making it accessible to the audience that you want to reach? By beginning with the grocery approach, people already kind of have a level of expectation of accessibility because everyone deserves groceries. Um, But we've hired a team of chefs who've worked in um, very dynamic, uh, very high-end kitchens who also care about food in the same way that we do um, and the accessibility of it. So our food isn't necessarily cheap. We're not trying to compare our value to the corner bodega, you know, where you can get a loaf of bread that is loaded um, with preservatives and has, has been bleached white. Um, and you can get for about $3. You know, our bread is probably double the price of that, but it's highly nutritious. It's higher quality, the ingredients are better, and we work directly with um, local farmers so you know where your food is coming from. And also, our food is relatable. Uh, The food that we're making isn't new, it's familiar. You know, we're making sandwich bread. We're selling collard greens and not just kale. But we're also leading with the fact that although this concept is um, focused on Black aesthetics and traditions and, and culinary pathways, it's not Um, exclusive to that either. You know, um, many of our neighbors are elderly and Jewish. Um, Many of our neighbors are elderly and black. Um, They're young children. Uh, Our store exists um, on the heels of University City and a historically black neighborhood called Walnut Hill. Um, And so the foods that we're making, and this is again speaking about humanity and not necessarily about the construct of race, food is universal. So, you know, you remove the idea of tradition and culture from it, collard greens is just another leafy green. And everyone understands leafy greens. We're just very intentional, right, about everything, from our sourcing to how we're preparing every single thing on our menu. If we bring in a new product or a new item, that could be a Haitian ingredient or it could be something from Sierra Leone. We're not just putting it on the menu and telling folks, here, taste it, because it's good. 
there's a little bit of education that comes along with it and in hopes of people kind of widening their palates and understanding more about our food waste. I think the approach we've had from the beginning is that we're actually giving folks the agency of choice and just making sure our customers, our neighbors are more informed, being super certain that you know what farmers are touching your food, you know what ingredients, you know what chemicals or additives or preservatives are going into your food. That just makes a difference in, in how we approach this business and, and being an institution in our neighborhood. So I know you guys have done away with titles in the kitchen. Everyone is called chef. You know, your interview process for assembling the team included learning about people's interests and their relationship to food. What did you want to change about the traditional restaurant model? A full dismantling of it, <laughs> um, quite <laughs> frankly. We just, um, so having, you know, worked in restaurants and worked under very toxic circumstances, um, it was very important for us to kind of disrupt that brigade system and to disrupt that toxicity in our own space. In order to do that, you really have to see your employees, your team members as people and bring back the human element into this very human thing we're, we're doing, which is preparing food for others to consume. So we felt it was very necessary to make sure that we showed that we cared about the people we were hiring, um, cared about how they took care of themselves, how they fed themselves, also cared about you know their work experience naturally, but it wasn't the end-all be-all of um, their employment because we have a few team members now that are very novice that we train, we teach, and we like them because of how they want to show up in our space and, and within their community. It's truly an approach that really focuses on decolonizing the way that we um, interact with people that are providing services for us. And let's be real, I mean, this is an exchange. We are owners, they are employees, um, but that exchange doesn't have to feel exploitive. And so wanting to make sure that our culture in the kitchen was very respectful and um, above all else, just cognizant of things that they have going on in their lives, because we have so much going on in our life. Um, and in order to really like change and redesign our communities, we had to kind of make sure that we were changing and redesigning the way that we're leading and running our business. How do you square that with how demanding it is opening a new business and keeping expectations super high? It is a lot of emotional labor, and some days, I can I think I can speak for both of us, we don't always have it. I'm working overnights and baking bread and then also working into the day. Sybil is almost nine months pregnant. We kind of live in two states right now. We're definitely burning the candle on both ends. Mm -hmm. And so some days it definitely does not feel as worth it as others, to be quite frank. But it is worth it in the long run in that we can be an example for other businesses to kind of build upon. So we're standing in our apartment, which is uh, two blocks away from the store, which makes it very convenient for us. Um, but we just moved in about two months ago and still have a lot of things in boxes. All of our records are on the floor, unfortunately, but we have a really cool butler cabinet thing that holds all our cookbooks. One of my favorites is probably this book called Creole. It's by this woman, Chef Babette. She focuses on French Caribbean food, and she lives in Paris currently, but she made this beautiful cookbook that is a collection of 
um, food from uh, the Caribbean, mainly like Martinique and St. Lucia. It's one of my favorites and I refer to it often. We have post-its all in our books. This is um, uh, the Nordic cookbook by Magnus Nilsson. Um, and we saved a, uh, a pancake recipe here, which is like a really light and airy one. Um, and then, you know, not all these books are just cookbooks. This is um, the From Captivity to Fame or The Life of George Washington Carver, uh, which is a, a biography written about him. Or one of my favorite authors, actually, um, MFK Fisher, this book considered oyster. I'm a big fan of oysters, but also, you know, what you learn about oysters in this book, and here's a poem inside <laughs> of it that I wrote. Oh, you um, want to read it? Sure, I'll read it. It's one of yours, so read it. Okay, this one is called Living Single. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, so you asked for it, didn't you? <laughs> to the lady at the bank, I remember you today and how I saw a twinkle in your eye when you saw me. Through that glass turnstile, I remember your smile. You admired me because I said I was a single dad. I always had a gut feeling that maybe part of it was simply because I was single. I admired your service and how you didn't judge me because you knew it all, even when I was hungry enough to withdraw my last seven singles. Nice. <laughs> that poem actually has absolutely nothing to do with oysters. <laughs> but yeah, it's the notes. It's the little things that give the books more life than they actually have beyond their pages. Yeah. You got everything you need, Omar? Yeah, let me just shut these lights. You know what's really funny? Hmm. Like, two blocks that way, north, a coffee shop or this plant shop couldn't exist. Just because it's like a completely different neighborhood. But 48th Street, which is where our store is, is kind of the cutoff. All these businesses on this side of the street are all black-owned businesses that have been around for a number of years. Yo, what's good? So you've touched a little bit on this already, but a big part of the mission at Honeysuckle Provisions has been to directly support Black farmers and Black-owned food businesses. Can you share more details about that? Well, back when Honeysuckle was a pop-up, I was traveling back and forth to the South, um, intentionally learning about... um, Black foodways and our relationships to agriculture and land. Sybil was traveling back and forth to Haiti, um, learning a lot about her lost connection and her lost relationship um, to land and working with um, farmers and other chefs on the island. So I think we don't like to tout it as this thing, you know, Black-owned only or anything like that. It's really just the work that we do. It's the work that we've been doing. I mean, personally, I I, I feel like it just makes sense. It's, it's organic. You know, we're working within our community. And if you look at history, the ability to work directly with one another in, in this way and create ecosystems around 
agriculture and the economy that cycles around agriculture has been disrupted. You know, it's been disrupted since the transatlantic slave trade. It's been disrupted since the establishment of black towns. It's been disrupted since 1804 when Haitians regain control of their own bodies and island, you know? So um, I feel like this is more work of recovery than um, any sort of like contemporary intention on like spend money on black businesses. It's just recovering of the lost ecosystems that we were never allowed to have. It sounds like you're basically creating a new food ecosystem or supply chain. Yeah, I think one thing that we understood with the pandemic is that supply chain can really dismantle your business if it's in flux. And so um, we took it upon ourselves to source out the vendors, the people that were close within a driving distance to us to be able to kind of get those products firsthand. So um, if there is another pandemic, God forbid, or if there is another shift or breakdown in this like ecosystem that so many food businesses rely on, that we have an alternative, we have our own Um, supply chain to kind of rely on. We can literally just drive to these farmers and get what we need in order to continue doing our business and operating. And we look forward to being able to extend that down the eastern coast. I mean, international is a whole other story, but (laughs) no, I don't think we're extending our supply (laughs) chain to Haiti anytime soon. But (laughs) just being able to kind of just drive up the east coast to get what we need to continue feeding our community is uh, radical thinking within itself. That disruption, creating that food ecosystem on our own terms for ourselves, I think makes a difference. In a way, it sounds a little bit like farm to table 2.0. Like a decade ago, you'd go to a restaurant and you would see that the tomatoes were from Sunnybrook Farm from this state. But you guys are doing something really different. You're not centering that as a marketing strategy. You're doing the real work. We both came up in kitchens at a time when farm to table became this vaulted luxury thing as if we don't all eat farm to table mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. It just depends on what farm you're getting it from. You know, it's not like these avocados are grown in some lab in the back of a stop and shop. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so the question is who's been excluded from that narrative and who's been able to profit from that narrative. And if you look around, it's not just not black people, it's not people of color around the country around the world, really. People have described what we're doing as world building, and that's one of the few labels that I really appreciate out of the many that people try to label us with. But world building is true, you know, because the folks that we're working with are not a part of these uh, more conventional ecosystems. Here in Pennsylvania, here in Philadelphia, if it's not your larger food purveyors like Cisco or Baldor or one of those things, most folks are getting their food from um, Lancaster County, the historically Amish and Mennonite community, um, only an hour and 30 minutes away from Philadelphia that uh, for hundreds of years has benefited from the lack of disruption of access to the city to be able to sell their goods to market and have established their own basically farming and agriculturally based industry um, that is firmly placed in the center of the city and right in terminal market. At the same time, uh, there was a very significant society of free blacks that um, were establishing themselves in Philadelphia throughout hundreds of years and generations. And even more recently, through the Great Migration, black folks who moved from the South didn't only move up north to move into cities, but the farmers that we're working with left the South during the Great Migration to come up here and farm. Uh, most people don't know that these farmers exist. You know, So pulling that history 
and adding to that legacy is part of the work that we're doing. And I, I know that you said, Sybil, that thinking internationally is like probably not going to happen, but quite frankly, I just, I think that it will. But if we start here, of course, know, if of we course. start locally, we start domestically, we're definitely tearing down and making it possible. Yeah. I was just thinking about the logistical nightmare of having to like deal with shipping. Oh, 100%. <laughs> it's a lot, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's world building, like you were saying, and we are essentially creating our own little honeysuckle earth, if you will. So in your world building mission, what are you guys going to be building next? Where do we go from here? The trajectory is to essentially be able to open up more honeysuckles and to also be able to provide this blueprint for anyone else that wants to open their own version of honeysuckle. Because what we do know is that we can't be the only ones doing this work. And we're not. But if we're the only ones doing this type of work in Philadelphia, we are not better off as a people. And so we want to be able to open our doors and, and have folks want to come in and expound on what we're doing and then to open it in different cities and to come to us and say, hey, we got this really cool idea that would work within Honeysuckle and just provides more access to really great fresh ingredients and good food to others. Also, books. Right. <laughs> we want to write, we want to write books. books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that, that's like one of the ways of like being able to spread the the dogma of honeysuckle, right, <laughs> is, to, is to be able to have multiple forms of media exercising all the things that we're doing and putting it out there into the universe so that our world gets bigger. One of the things that really stuck out to me during our soft open was that actually more than one older woman came into our store and said they were very thankful to us because they don't have to walk as far to get a single onion. Hmm. Hmm. We live in a neighborhood where, you know, there are plenty of food places, but there aren't many places where you can buy food to cook for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that story of placemaking that is Honeysuckle Provisions, our story is going to be an impactful one that was sort of like a, a testimony and a roadmap to how something like a single onion can change someone's life. That's our show for today. If you're in Philly and want to visit Honeysuckle Provisions, head to the links section in our episode description for more info. And for those not in the city, the shop is planning to offer shipping for some pantry items in time for the holidays and beyond. I'm your host, producer, and the creator of this podcast, Alex Redgrave, and here are all the incredible people who bring place settings to life. The show is also produced by Ali Alkiza, executive creative producer, Hallie Petro, Head of Production, Pat Sullivan. Associate Producer, Kimu Alolia. Production Assistant, Alex Teal. The theme music and original composition is by Julian Fader and Justin Morris. Music edit, sound design, and mix by Rob Ballingal, with support from Kelly Ostman and Owen Shearer. Music supervision by Justin Morris. Our tape sync and field recordist in Philadelphia is Lorenzo Rossi. At Sever, our chief content officer is Kate Berry. The podcast visual design is by Britt Ashcraft. Play Settings is recorded and produced with Sonic Union in New York City. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week, we're gathering with loved ones, and we hope you are too. Join us the following Thursday, December 1st, for the last episode of the season. Season.